brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been made refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you and sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he is parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And we'll pause there as we see the intro to this letter of Philemon. What we have here is a circumstance that we don't know much about. We know enough to say that Onesimus had run away from his uh, slave master, uh, Philemon. And that running away caused him uh, to run away wherever Paul was, imprisoned, uh, most likely on house arrest. And that is how he was introduced um, to Paul, uh, probably through uh, some of the other members of the Colossian church who knew where Paul was imprisoned. And so Onesimus is presented to him as a runaway slave, and in that context was a very, very uh, uh, precarious situation. Uh, to be a runaway slave uh, was uh, to be in, in um, uh, a very dangerous place with the Roman civil authorities. Uh, you could be severely punished if not put to death. And anyone harboring a fugitive slave uh, would be uh, put in a lot of trouble as well. And so you can imagine how, um, how easy it would be for Paul, as he's already in prison, to be like, by the way, Onesimus, please don't come around here because I definitely will be in trouble if you're here because I'm already in trouble. And if they see you here with me, I'll be even more trouble. But the reverse happens. Paul invites him evidently in some way to his house because Paul is on house arrest. Paul can't go to the closest uh, Starbucks or, or whatever and meet him to, to talk to Onesimus. Onesimus had to be within the region of Paul's private uh, imprisonment uh, without anyone knowing that he was a runaway slave. Because if they did know he was a runaway slave, uh, Paul's circumstance would change dramatically. 
All this risk, all this was done at such a small level under the nose of uh, the Roman authorities so that what would happen? Just so Paul could say, this man is now born again. He once was your slave and now he's your brother. Now, what's so amazing about this little letter is that it's not amazing at all. It's so small. Most, some of us perhaps never even knew this was in the Bible. We can mention Genesis, Revelation. This letter is, is, is like your life and mine. It's small. It's insignificant. It's one page or one life among many hundreds. But it's still so very important. This tiny little thing that happened between these few people in this tiny little letter was the beginning of the whole Christian movement within the Roman Empire. Now what's locked up inside what Paul has said here in this letter are principles, are are the wisdom of the gospel for our lives to actually see as by God providing his grace by his spirit a true uh, reformation uh, of society. What we have here is Paul doing a play on words. First, opening himself up in a salutation to say that he is a prisoner of Christ. And it's true that he is a prisoner of Christ. And the double meaning could be a prisoner, of course, of Christ because he is a prisoner of Rome. But a prisoner of Christ because he is bound to do everything and anything that the Lord has called him to do. He truly is enslaved to Jesus. And that's a beautiful slave relationship. For what master would give his own body and blood for his slave? And that is the relationship that all of us find ourselves in. And Paul, finding himself in his enslavement to Jesus, happened to also find himself in enslavement to Rome, as he was a faithful preacher of the gospel in a hostile environment. And this letter is a small letter written, like unlike all the other letters which address general churches. This one letter from Paul goes to one man, Philemon, and calls him a beloved fellow worker and brother in the faith. The micro-importance of this letter comes from the fact that it is one tiny little page. And we can definitely rest assured that there was no Roman um, magistrate. There was no Roman prefect in the Roman bureaucracy in the city of Rome that if you went up to them and said, did you read that letter from Philemon? They would say, I don't know what you're talking about. Or would you say, did you know that Philemon of Colossae has trusted in Jesus of Nazareth? And then that Roman prefect would say, who's Jesus of Nazareth? All of this is completely irrelevant. Yet here we are today. Talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And some guy named Philemon. But none of us know the name of the prefect. Or the magistrates that worked the Roman Empire thousands of years ago. The reason is because Jesus Christ is doing something by his spirit through his church. And these tiny little seemingly insignificant letters such as this were the catalyst for that change or reformation. It might not have been important to many people, but what we find here is Philemon being important to Paul. He says in verse 4, I thank my God always, remembering you in my prayers, to hear of your love And your faith toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. 
You have to imagine the type of love that occurs between Christians when you're actually walking in a, a confrontational environment for the Lord. Right? It's hard to dissect ourselves from our present circumstances where it is a matter of simply just worshiping and just going about your day. This man is in prison with his life threatened. So I'm going to read that verse again. And he says, I thank my God always remembering you, Philemon, some man he's never met. Hearing, I heard about your love for the Lord and your faith toward Jesus Christ and all the saints. See, it's the tiniest little relationships that matter. We need one another to be encouraged in the faith. You and I are not imprisoned for Jesus Christ. But you better believe, if you really were, if you really were holding to the confession of Jesus Christ, you would grab on to every ounce of encouragement you could from any other believer or brother or sister in Christ. That's, that's lost upon us. The idea that, that I remember speaking to one coming from a third world a country where people are persecuted very vigorously, churches are shot up and burnt down, and people go to church the next, the next Sunday. Put that in perspective to where people in America might be thinking, I don't know if I should make it to worship because I just don't know. It's not convenient for me. There's a disconnect right there. There's a huge disconnect. Why would, why would without relaying any names in this story of hearing a personal testimony from somebody, your church down the street got shot up and burnt by Muslims. And then the next week, they show up for church. America. What is that? How do we not roll out of bed to get out of church? Like, so, why would you do that? Then They just killed your cousin who went to such and such church. And you went to church again next Sunday publicly worshiping Jesus, knowing that they could burn your church down or shoot you. Why? This. There's something about the micro, the little, the relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ that Paul has experienced as in prison. To hear what's going on in Colossae and with Philemon. We need each other. Hebrews 10 says, hold fast the confession and the hope Without wavering, considering one another to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more. Right? That is the, the, the micro-relation that we're finding in this letter. The, the, the reality that someone knows your name, that someone knows your life, that we look to the right and the left of one another right now and put it in perspective to say, this life I have though not many people will write biographies about it, is remarkably important because the Lord is watching this. The Lord is seeing all this. And my walking before him and being encouraged and built up by other brothers and sisters in the faith is incredibly important, incredibly essential. And if it is not essential for us, then the point of this letter particularly is to be forced upon our minds to say, what am I missing in my Christian experience? 
What am I missing about Jesus? Why would they do things like this? Why would you face death? Why would you face prison and chains and, and slashing and whips? Why would you be so encouraged to gather together with other brothers and sisters in the faith, in the spirit, before the face of God, under threat of your own life? When the reality of our culture is that it is almost an inconvenience to consider Christ in this way. There is a tremendous thing missing here. Tremendous thing missing as far as our Christian experience. See, the reason this little letter is so important, and the reason that even though, of course, at the time the Roman culture cared nothing for it, they learned in short order that Christianity was going to be a big deal for the Roman Empire. They learned it in short order, after only one generation or so, that Christianity became a big political problem for Rome. And the point of looking at this micro-economy, the way the church should operate at the micro, the atomistic level, is to see that we are missing something huge from what the first century church did. They were salt and light in the world. They were uncompromisingly Christian. 24-7, 365, in everything they did. And that had tremendous influence, though from the outside it looked absolutely inconsequential, as inconsequential of this letter. The reason this letter is being read today, the reason Christianity was adopted as a religion of Rome only a few years later, was because of one of things, this prayer in verse 6. Paul says this, I pray, Philemon, that the sharing of your faith may become effective. Effective for the full knowledge of every good thing for the sake of Jesus Christ. That prayer was answered. I pray that the sharing of your faith, the Greek is koinonia, which means a small, close fellowship. The sharing of the faith between believers, the koinonia of faith, the fellowship of your faith, that the fellowship of your faith would be effective, that it would be different, that it would be salty, that it would be luminous, it would be light, it would be distinct, that the sharing of your faith that you have as you host this very small, inconsequential church in your home, in the city of Colossae, that that would be, what you guys share there, would be effective. Effective. In what way? For the full knowledge of every good thing. We have particular temptations laid upon us in the church to categorize Jesus over here and to say I'm a Christian doing something this way but when I go to school, when I go to work, when I enter into business dealings, when I do various other things, we don't talk about Jesus the same way we would right here now this Sunday morning. That is a lie. It's a lie. There is not religious language and devotional type of speech and pious behavior that happens in this context. That does not happen on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Does not happen in the courtroom. Does not happen in the school. Does not happen in the business room. Does not happen in civil discourse. Does not happen on political media. That is a lie. There is no difference. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Now that disconnect is what makes this prayer so effective. Is that it would be effective in every good work. 
And so he prefaces all this to get just to the point and the beautiful example of what's being laid out here for us to learn from. He's asking him to live a reformed life in every area. Particularly, he's prefacing him so that he could broach the issue of slavery with a slave master. He goes on to mention slavery and says, Onesimus, I have him. Now before he goes and says anything about Onesimus, he wants him to know this guy that is your slave. I have him. He's found. I know you lost him. He ran away. Here's the deal. I want you to remember now that the fellowship you have in the faith that will be effective in every good work. So before I start talking about your slave Onesimus, remember who you are. You're a Christian. Remember all of your life submitted to Jesus Christ. Let's put this whole slavery master conversation in that context. Let's frame it with those parameters or parentheses because slavery of course as we said previous week is a complicated issue and this is what makes this letter so informative for us today are there any political or I don't know controversial ethical cultural issues that we face as Christians today maybe maybe and here's the thing that just drives me nuts about the church We are so confident to talk about how marriage is really important. And so so confident to talk about how we should raise godly children. But when it comes to anything else that really matters in society, that's just a little too dirty for me. i got to wipe my hands of that. And we, we can't talk about war and economics and a Christian way to do um, politics and a Christian way to do state and a Christian way to do uh, uh, business and all these bioethical issues. It's all just so complicated and convoluted. And then it becomes, then this is the accusation, the church is becoming political. Political. The only way that phrase is ever used is when the church starts to address things that you don't agree with. Then it's political. Because everything's political. But particularly when the scriptures put pressure on particular issues that are not considered within the Overton window or the, or, the, or the purview of what should be appropriate speech or appropriate things that Jesus should be addressing, that's considered being political. Here's the reality. We have a beautiful example here as this letter addresses slavery. Slavery. See, the natural institution of marriage is natural. The institution of uh, children or family is natural. The institution of slavery, biblically speaking, is unnatural. Okay? It's unnatural for one person to own another person. We all sense that that's just not appropriate. But it's a historical fact. And even though it's not natural, that is when we say the biblical definition of the state of nature, that is the, the garden before the fall... What was, the guard, what, did, what was God's original intention before the fall? No slavery. No abnormal or unnatural uh, dominion or ownership of one man or woman over another. So that is not natural. So what we're finding here is not Paul just going on again about marriage and how important that is because it's clear. Or going on again about how children and parents should relate to one another. He's actually addressing an unnatural, complicated issue. It's complicated. It's messy. First century Roman slavery was an okay solution to some social evils and a particular evil to certain people. And many scholars debate over this much. What was Roman slavery in the first century? Why should the scriptures not outright condemn it? The reason... 
uh, is because it's such a huge chasm of differences. It's not monolithic by any stretch of the imagination. Slaves in the first century sometimes could be very well educated. Most of the most respected and revered physicians of the first century were slaves. And they would travel in the upper echelons of society, healing people who could afford their services. Or uh, slaves who were large of, uh, managed large legal estates. Very wealthy, doing very well for themselves. And then at the same time, you could have a slave who was a male or female prostitute, who was whipped and chained and beat and discredited and uh, disrespected and even killed. So that's why it's complicated. And that's why this letter is so so awesome. Because Paul is giving us a lead. He's giving us a hint. Though he's not at all addressing any of our 21st century ethical issues. And of course he would laugh at some of them. But he's giving us a lead to say how do you address complicated, not natural, not God's design, messy political, cultural issues. How do you address that? How do you deal with that actual problem? And here in the letter, we find him leading in such a way to show that it's the same way you deal with everything. Slavery, again, we say is contrary to nature. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That was written by Moses coming out of Egypt. In Egypt, in which they happened to be enslaved, the title that the Pharaoh took upon himself, as we've said before, was called the image of God. That phrase, image of God, was used by the Pharaoh to uh, take a transcendental uh, right to dominate other people. So the image of God language, particularly in the context of them coming out of Egypt, had everything to do with one person's right to be a master, because they were made after the image of God, and others who were not made after the image of God, to be dominated and to be enslaved. And so as Israel is fresh to remember what that feels like, and how wrong that is, Genesis, in the beginning, God created all humanity Male and female with this unique dignity and honor and glory of being image bearers of God. So from the very beginning, almost historically as an antithetical side note, slavery is precluded. It is considered unnatural. It is not according to God's design. Paul, when he writes in 1 Timothy 7, encourages people that if you are a bondservant as a Christian, do not be bothered by that. Continue in your slavery. But he says, if you are able to, 1 Corinthians 7.21, he says, go out and find freedom. If you can get freedom, get it. It is better to be free. The Roman system of slavery was much more common than what we experience here in America. A large population of the Roman Empire was enslaved. That's actually what many would say is what led to the downfall of Rome, is they took in so many slaves that they didn't even have a culture anymore. They just had a slave economy. It was not limited to any ethnic thing like we did here in the States. All the slaves were other Greek or white types of people. Slavery in Rome was emancipation, except for criminals. Slavery in Rome usually was worse once people were free. Their economy and style of life actually got worse. 
And slavery in Rome, slaves oftentimes willingly under their own volition entered into a slave contract to better their life. And education was encouraged for the slaves. And the slaves could even own property at times. So all this to say, yes, it was evil, it was wicked, and it was also good and provided social healing to some social evils. That's the beauty of this letter. It's complicated. Sometimes... There isn't an actual word to say, this is what the church should do on a political matter. This is how the church should approach this issue. Because the issue is good and bad. Partially right, partially wrong. Complicated. It's politics. The art of finding things that can be compromised. The art of finding what is possible to be done in a populace before everyone gets their guns out. We would rather have politics than war. But to do that, you actually have to compromise. You have to have middle ground where things are gray and messy and hazy. And without compromising anything, we have inspired scripture of the authorized apostle giving counsel to lead how the church should address issues like this. And it is micro. That's the answer. Microeconomics. Relating, exchanging with one another at the smallest, tiniest level. See, marriage is a clear, clean, positive good. Family is a clear, clean, positive good. Slavery, it is not clear that it is uh, clean, and it is not clear that it is a positive good. And he says this, Though bold enough in Christ to command what I want from you, Yet, for love's sake, I prefer rather Philemon to appeal to you. That I want, I want Onesimus. I don't want to give him back to you. He's making an appeal, but how does he do it? I, Paul, he says, an old man. I, a prisoner also of Jesus Christ. I could appeal on apostolic authority. I could come from this side, from the church relating to the regular culture, the secular culture, and say that I'm an apostle, therefore do this for me. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to appeal to you on love as an old man and a prisoner. I'm going to take the posture of humbling myself. I'm going to take the posture of weakening myself. I'm going to take the posture of Jesus Christ and relate to you this way, Philemon, who I have your slave and I'm returning to. I want you to be motivated by love. By love. If you can see this issue as a small relation of one man and one slave in this whole messed up system of Roman slavery, which is evil and wicked and also providing some social good and protection. It's all messed up. It's all complicated. It's not clear. And he comes in to this intimate relationship of a small, tiny little bit of this massive institution and says, one master, one slave, figure it out. Figure it out at this level. How does he do it? He puts Jesus Christ right in the center of it. This This is how it works for us as Christians. We are not looking to bring some arbitrary revolution to the world. There is reason, Colossians says, that Jesus Christ has all hidden wisdom. That he is the the wisdom of Christ to know how to bring true resolution to complicated problems. And only Jesus can do that. And he works that way by his spirit through the little hearts of little men and little women in a large, complicated, evil culture. That 
is what Paul is doing. He's going straight to it to bring it out that way. And he's modeling that in his own life. That he could come across with a power trip, an authority, with a type of command approach. But instead, he humbles himself, considers himself nothing, and approaches the position of a a humble servant or a, a slave. Like, like Jesus did? That model of what he's doing is the same way that Jesus has chose to conquer the world. Through tribulation, through humiliation, through self-abdication. That was not just the way Jesus saved the world. That was an example, a model for us to live in the world. Predicated by the fact that Jesus said, if you would come after me... That cross is also for you. That if we were to humble, do what Paul is saying, and not take any power trip in this play, but bring Jesus Christ to the smallest level of the smallest hearts, and let the wisdom of Christ rule and reign. That changes institutions. It changed the whole Roman Empire. And only in a short time. But see, it doesn't work like before, mentioning how I went and went out and bought a couple shirts a few weeks ago. And therefore I stimulated the economy. And I'm glad to report to you all that I have stayed the recession. <laughs> now I hope that they write me in the history books. But I did it. I went out and bought a few shirts. But see, it won't work unless all of the church understands this is how we do it. If 2 or 3% of us here in this church understand that some of us are particularly gifted to be evangelists or whatever you might call. It doesn't work. But if this letter makes sense, that this was the the way the early church worked, is that all of us were to walk in the Spirit, be Christians 24-7, 365, and have a faithful representation of Jesus Christ in every institution that you particularly represent. For we all have different institutions. This one has to do with the institution of slavery. But not negotiating for a minute and maintaining the line that I'm a Christian here. Now, if we all did that, well, that's what we would call a revival or a reformation. If we all just would do that. But God's going to have to pour his spirit out upon all of us, at least upon me, to wake up on Monday and not be thinking about everything that has to be done, but think about everything that has to be done for the glory of Jesus. For the glory of Jesus. If you all have five bucks and you spend, you make your influence in this week, then you have made a difference. But if all of us did it, that's staying the spiritual economy. That's actually investing. That's micro. It only can work at the micro level. God gets glory for this, you see. Jesus didn't want to save the world through some big plan. Because it had to be. None of us can get praise for it. If God is going to do a reformation this way at a micro level, then no one gets to stand a shoulder above the rest and say, I am the godly one. I am the one that brought a reformation. No, no, no. We all do it. We all inconsequentially live this kind of life. And so here is the transformation. Here is how we find Paul leading toward this type of ethic. This runaway slave, he says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, the father, whose father I became in prison. He formerly was useless to you, and now, indeed, he is useful to you and me. And now here's the thing, I'm sending him back to you, even though he is my very heart. 
And we don't know what Onesimus did. We're hinted at in verse 18 where it says, If he's wronged you or owes you anything, charge it to my account. Whatever the situation was that caused Onesimus to run away, the conclusion is this. In verse 13, Paul says, I would have you uh, keep him with me as a service for me in prison. Though I would not do this under compulsion, but out of your own goodness, it is your decision to determine. And then he concludes, why did all this happen? Verse 15, perhaps. Perhaps he's just parted from you for a while so that you might have him back forever. It was never about slavery. If you make the issue the issue, you can't solve the issue. If it's a political problem, it cannot, if it's a sin problem in our culture, it cannot be solved politically. It has to be solved with atonement. It wasn't a slave issue. There was something between the two. And the words, Colossians 2, 3, God's mystery, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom to approach complicated political issues as a church. It's never the political issue. It's Christ. Or it's not Christ. Maybe he was parted from you just for a moment. So that you might have him back forever. And here's the transformation. No longer as a bondservant. But more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother. Do you see how the institution has absolutely flipped upon its head? That the relationship was always slave-master, slave-master. The conflict is dealt with as slave-master, higher-lower. Jesus dropped right into the center of it, and now it is brother-brother. At the micro level, Paul did not go for a law. Paul did not go to Rome to appeal for this. Paul went to Rome to appeal to preach Christ. Because downstream from Christ is culture. Downstream from putting Jesus at the center of the Roman Empire. Then slavery can fix itself. But it has to happen at the micro level. It has to happen between Philemon and Onesimus. As we approach communion, we're reminded that the nature of culture, that it began in a garden. It extended through promises and covenants. It extended to the promise of a great Messiah, covenant king, and a kingdom. And the whole thing ends in a city. From the beginning to the end, what we as Christians do with culture is a non-negotiable. The culturated fruit in the garden is where we get the word culture. All the way down to the building of a great city of New Zion. There is a Christian culture. There is a way to do it. But Jesus Christ is the wisdom that only can work at the small level to make it happen. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you that you have given us this, your body and your blood. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this bread and wine. Lord, we thank you that you have wiped away all of our sins. Lord, we thank you that we do confidently have the solution to the ills of the world. Jesus Christ. Even if we would know the solution, Lord, we have no power to change to make the solution. But you do, and us through you.
So Lord, we ask that you would have us be faithful at the smallest responsibilities you give us in every domain and institution that is ours, that we might bring Jesus Christ to the center of it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing Knowing You to prepare for communion.
God, we are here before your table. Lord, you've given us your body. Lord, we thank you. You've given us this body and your son. You've given us this life, this blood, this lifeblood in your son, Lord. Uh, we are here, Father, before you, confessing Jesus Christ as our covenant Lord, our Savior, our friend, our deepest and dearest love. Uh, Lord, we have confessed our shortcomings. We have confessed our lack of love for you and our love for this world, our love for ourselves and our own vain glory. From time to time, Lord, our heart has not been true. But here now, Father, in this prayer, we confess that we will be true to you. We will be true to you in this moment. Lord, that we again are recommitting our lives, signing on this covenant that you've given us in your own blood. So Lord, please prepare our hearts to take this and receive your great grace in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of God from Matthew 26. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And there it is, understanding that all of our endeavors, though they might be to create Christian culture and Christian kingdom where Jesus Christ is Lord of all, whether we fail or succeed, the promise is true. That you and I will have this before him again in his kingdom. He will finish it. Through our failings or through our success, it matters not. He will finish it. This is a culturated bread, we could say. That is gluten bread, gluten-free bread. Uh, so I encourage you to remember, if you're looking for gluten, it is all gluten-free, but perhaps better than last month. Um, perhaps, we'll see. If you are not in Christ, if you do not follow the Lord Jesus Christ yet, I ask you to not take this. It is not for you yet. It would bring judgment upon your life. You're trying to make a promise you know nothing of. And you'll be held accountable to promise you have no idea what you're doing. So we ask you not to. We have communicants class. Uh, we have elders here. If you want to come to Christ, today is the day. But now is not the time. If you are in Christ, you know that you're a sinner. And you know you fell regularly. The reality of what's presented before you again today is all of that is paid for in full. And believe it afresh today as if you heard it the first time. Your sins are gone. If that's you, then take this. You're going to need to eat this. Gentlemen, that same night he broke the bread and he gave it to them and said, this is my body, take this and eat.
immediately after that same night, Jesus took off the other symbol in front of them and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take this and drink it as often as you do in remembrance of me. We're still doing that today in remembrance of him and the the blood that was paid, the life that was given. If your life is in that life, this cup is for you. Gentlemen,
But when they did the Passover, you weren't allowed to break uh, any bone in the lamb so that everyone had to be in one spot to eat it together. And together we are here uh, drinking this together in one spot because we're united together in Christ by this blood. So let us drink it together in his name. Our Father God, we thank you that before your face right now, we have recommitted our lives to you and our lives to one another, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit as we fill this room with our praises now and into the days ahead, that you would help us to walk in your spirit and pray continually and be a faithful witness for your glory of your son in all domains of our life. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Please stand. Since we've been freed from our slavery to sin, here's a blessing that Jesus has promised to us. 
He says, you are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants is your blessing. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. All things have been given to me, I have given to you. Therefore I call you friends. Be blessed as the friends of God in Jesus' name. Amen.